I'm one of the pastors of the church, and this morning, we are at the end of a journey. Uh, For the past three months, we've been learning together on Sundays and in city groups from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, and this morning, we are going to explore the very last passage of the letter. Uh, Now, this may be hard for you to believe, but at the Cohen House, I do the majority of the letter and thank you card writing because I absolutely love to write. And no matter how many thank you cards I write, inevitably, the most important part of every card and every letter I write is the very end. It's like I've gotten beyond the generalities and the niceties, and I'm finally ready to communicate what I really want you to hear. And in a somewhat similar way, that is also true of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, don't get me wrong. The entire letter is rich and beautiful. That's why we spent three months on it. And it's rich and beautiful because it's the Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant word of God, all of it. But many scholars actually agree that it's in this final part of the letter that we actually discover sort of Paul's main point for writing. And interestingly, it's in this last part of the letter that Paul addresses money at length. Money. Now, that shouldn't be too surprising to us. Shouldn't be surprising to us in particular because the Philippians financially supported Paul's gospel ministry. So we shouldn't be shocked that he mentions it and thanks them for their financial contribution. But in general, we should never be surprised when the Bible speaks at length about money because the Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches in the Gospels that the way that we handle money actually reveals what our hearts are truly devoted to. And so we're not really surprised that at the end of Philippians, Paul addresses money at length. Now, I also know that for many of us, whenever the subject of money comes up in a church setting, we get really nervous, right? It's like, oh my goodness, here it comes because we've seen so many abuses. We have actually very legitimate reasons for getting a little skeptical in religious environments when money comes up. Now, despite all those legitimate reasons you may have to be nervous this morning, I I wanna ask you, and I'm gonna invite myself, to just, let's all just fire our inner lawyer this morning. Let's fire our inner lawyer and inner law firm so that we can hear what God has to say to us through this beautiful passage. Because honestly, though this passage addresses money at length, it's really not about money. This passage does address money at length, but this, this passage is most certainly not about money. So what is it about? Well, whenever you're trying to discern what a passage of Scripture is all about, one thing that is often helpful is to look at how the passage begins and then look at how it ends. Let's do that with our passage. Let's look at verse 10 where the passage begins. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly or exuberantly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So Paul is rejoicing because the Philippians have been used by God to provide for his needs. So Paul rejoices in the provision, but much more, he's rejoicing in the Lord who provides. 
Okay, so the passage begins with sort of a, a note of joy, rejoicing in the God who is our provider. Now let's look at how the passage closes, at least the body of it in verse 19. Paul says, and my God, the God who provides, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we sort of have the sandwich of the passage here. Paul begins and he says, I rejoice because God has provided for me through you, and I promise that God is going to also provide for you as you provide for me. And so the giver and the receiver both have every reason, really equal reason, to rejoice because God is the one who supplies for both the giver and the receiver. No one's independent. This is ultimately God's provision coming through and to us. And so it's only appropriate that Paul would conclude the body of the letter by saying, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's pretty obvious, actually, that this passage is not about money. This passage is all about rejoicing, not in money or gifts per se, but rejoicing in the God who provides and then going public with that rejoicing, which is really what it means to glorify God. It's to go public with the joy that we have in the God who provides for all to see and hear. See, the passage really isn't about money. I think the big idea of our passage this morning is this. Rejoice and give glory to the God who provides. Paul closes Philippians in some sense by commanding us to do the same thing he's been commanding all through the letter. Rejoice and give glory to and in this particular passage, it's give glory to the God who provides. Now, rejoice and give glory to the God who provides, those are really the, like I said, the bookends of the passage. But in between, Paul provides all sorts of reasons why. All sorts of reasons why we should rejoice and give glory to the God who provides. And this morning, I want to highlight three of them. Three reasons why we should rejoice and give glory to the God who provides. Here's the first one. The first reason why we rejoice and give glory to the God who provides is because God provides for the needy. God provides for the needy. In our passage, the apostle Paul is the needy one. See, Paul was an apostle who traveled from city to city and he preached the gospel and he planted churches and he did it full time. So he didn't have a regular job from which he could provide for his own needs and wants. But God provided for the needy Paul. We see that again in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So Paul's rejoicing exuberantly in the Lord because ultimately it's the Lord who provides for the needy. But how does the Lord do it? Well, we get the details of how the Lord provided for Paul in verses 14 to 16. 
He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Okay, so what's Paul saying? He's saying, I rejoice in the Lord exuberantly because the Lord has provided for my needs. But how has he done it? See, in his beautiful wisdom, God does not typically just provide for needy Christians unilaterally. He actually uses generous Christians to do it. And so Paul is rejoicing in the Lord greatly because the Lord provides for needy Christians through generous Christians. The Lord provides for the needs of the body of Christ through the body of Christ. It's the brilliance of it. And so Paul rejoices. He's saying, the Lord has provided for my needs and he's used you, people I love to do it. I have every reason to rejoice and give glory to the Lord because the Lord provides for needy Christians through generous Christians. Now, at City Light, we do this formally and informally. So on an informal level, one of the things we always talk about here is that we want to be the kind of people who are just constantly meeting one another's needs, where we're just so in touch with the God of grace who has met all of our greatest needs through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we're just ready to give ourselves away for one another, give away our time, our treasure, our talent. And so informally, we want to be the kind of people, it's like you hear about someone in your city group who needs a bill paid. This came up recently in one of our city groups. And instead of the city group leader coming to the elders and saying, hey, can we pay for this person's bill? It's like the whole group just pooled their money together and helped the person out. That's beautiful. We just do that informally. Other times, you'll have friends like they're having a, a serious challenge in their marriage, it's like, okay, well, I want to meet that need. I have God's word and I've got time. I'm going to encourage them, spend time with them, that sort of thing. We want to be the kind of people who just informally, all the time are saying, well, we're a body. If I'm a hand and the nose has an itch, I want to scratch it. If a finger is broken, the rest of them, we're going to work to mend it. God uses generous Christians to provide for needy Christians at City Light informally all the time. But we also do this formally, and we do it financially. So for example, we all take a portion of God's money. Remember, all of our money is God's money. We take a portion of it, and we give generously to City Light. And then City Light Church gives that money to provide for the needs of the members among us. And so we are consistently taking in generous giving so that we can give to real needs, physical and spiritual. And by God's grace even, he's provided for us to the point that we can even meet some of the needs of those around us who aren't even part of our church, people in our community and in our city. And we do that especially at City Light through the Whosoever Gospel Mission and the Hope Pregnancy Center. And so what we do, what we're seeing happening here at City Light is the very thing that we read in this passage, that God is using generous Christians to provide for needy Christians, and therefore we have every reason to rejoice and glorify God. 
So really practically. I just want to give you two very practical encouragements. This is sort of like family talk. So if you're here and you're just sort of checking Christianity out and you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. You guys are talking all about money. Kind of glad I'm not yet a follower of Jesus. You guys don't, don't get to touch my money. Yeah, I understand very much so. But, you know, just for family talk for a moment, I want to give you just two very practical encouragements when someone meets a need of yours. That could be physical, social, psychological, spiritual. It's not easy to separate these. First, when someone meets a need of yours, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord because when someone meets a need of yours, that's actually the Lord providing for you. That means that when someone or the corporate community, when you have, let's say, a bill paid, a counseling appointment subsidized, a meal delivered after you have a baby, when you have someone who disciples you, when you're part of a rich city group, when you get to sit under Bible teaching, rejoice in the Lord instead of begrudging your need. I think it's so often really tempting to be like, no, I want to be the one who's always providing. I never want to have need. I never want anyone to have to help me move. I never want to have anyone need to bring me a meal. I never want to have a bill subsidized or a counseling appointment subsidized. I never want to need to be discipled. I never want to be led in a city group. I don't want to sit under, I want to be the giver. I felt this last week. I was sitting under, Andy was preaching the Bible beautifully, and I was like, ah, man, I want to be preaching the Bible, right? No, I need other people to bring God's word to me. We should not be begrudging our needs. We should be praising and rejoicing in the Lord because when someone meets any need of yours in the body of Christ, that is the Lord Jesus Christ providing for you. Why would you begrudge it? You know, I know this is hard. For most of you, you've grown up in American culture where the grand value is independence. Independence could not be more of a sub-gospel category. There's no such thing. Did you just breathe? That was an act of dependence on the God who sustains you. There is nothing you have that you haven't been given. There is nothing I possess that isn't a gift. Like, I bought this shirt two weeks ago at TJ Maxx, okay? Nine dollars, praise the Lord. Do you know... (laughs) Do you know how dependent I am on the supply chain to get this shirt? Look, independence is a myth, so why set it up as the grand value of your life? No, we're a people who say, yes, I have needs. I have spiritual needs. I have social needs. I have theological needs. I have needs all over the place, and the body is meeting them, and that is Jesus providing for me. We should just be rejoicing about it. Don't begrudge it. We're interconnected. Family living is dependent living. Secondly, second practical encouragement when someone meets a need of yours is give glory to God. You see, rejoicing in the Lord and giving glory to the Lord are interconnected, but they're not the exact same thing. Rejoicing in the Lord, like maybe, okay, let's say Andrea buys me this shirt. I can rejoice, wow, the Lord has provided with, for me something to wear on Sunday so I don't get fired. 
You know, and it's like, okay, praise the Lord, that's wonderful, I have a shirt, and the Lord is provided through Andrea. But it's a whole other thing to go public with that. Say, you know, the Lord has given me an incredibly gracious and generous wife, and she actually cares about me to the point of not wanting me to wear the same shirt every Sunday and look ridiculous. Wow, like, and now I've gone public with it. So if someone's meeting a need of yours, don't keep it to yourself, tell people about it. Give glory to God by going public with your joy. Remember that provision. Speak about it often. Celebrate it. This is God providing for us. And so the first reason that Paul gives for why we should rejoice and give glory to the God who provides is because God provides for the needy, especially through generous Christians. But many of us, we hear that and we go, yeah, of course, you know, God provides for the needy through generous Christians. Of course, beautiful, wonderful. I should probably be more generous, you know. But, you know, in our passage, it's actually not just the needy that God provides for. The second reason why we should rejoice and give glory to the God who provides is because God doesn't just provide for the needy. God also provides for the giver. God provides for the giver just as much as the receiver. Verse 18 shows us that in our passage, it's the Philippians who are the givers. Paul writes in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, Paul is the needy one. The Philippians are the givers. And in a most unnatural way, if you're a student of the Bible, you probably know the Philippians were not a wealthy church. And yet, they give abundantly and sacrificially so that Paul can say, I'm well supplied and even more than that. It's like the most unnatural thing in the world to give your money away when you're in a time of scarcity to supply the needs of someone else. Have you ever wondered why did the Philippians do it? Why did they do that? Well, I think they gave sacrificially because they knew that in giving sacrificially, God actually provides for the giver. God provides for the giver. And in verses 17 to 19, we'll see that God actually provides for givers in three different ways. Three different ways. So yes, I'm sneaking in three more points to this sermon, just go with it, okay. So how, how does God provide for givers? We, it's sort of obvious, oh, he provides for the needy through generous Christians, but how does he actually provide for the generous Christians, making both of them rejoice and just as needy as one another? Well, first, God provides givers with an opportunity for gospel partnership. The first way that God provides for givers is that God is actually providing those he gives, who give with an opportunity for gospel partnership. Where am I getting that? Verse 17. Paul says, not that I seek the gift. So he's saying to the Philippians, I'm not actually seeking, the, the point isn't really the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And the world does that mean? 
You see, the Philippians stayed put in Philippi. But the Apostle Paul traveled around preaching the gospel and God bore fruit through it. Tons of people came to faith in Jesus. Other people were built up in their faith in Jesus. And Paul says, when you financially provide for me to get to do that, the fruit that I experience through preaching the gospel is actually to your credit. The dividends go into your account because you are the one who provided for my needs so that I could preach the gospel so you get the credit. In other words, Paul is saying, when you gave to me, God was actually providing for you an opportunity to partner in the gospel because though maybe you couldn't leave Philippi, your money sure could. And it's interesting. I've actually talked to many of you who have said to me, I wish I could do more for the advance of the gospel. Now, let me just say as an aside, um, you can do a ton for the advance of the gospel right where you are in your regular life, in your home, in your workplace, among your friends, family, whoever it is that's in your life. But I do understand that you can't be in multiple places at once. And so many of you, you're like, I wanna bear more fruit for the gospel, but I got a house, I got a job, I got a family, I can't be in multiple places at once. I've got great news for you, your money can. Your money can be in a lot of different places at once. Advancing the gospel so that in the words of Paul, you get the credit. And so what Paul is saying here, what God is saying to us through Paul is that when we give our money away to advance the cause of the gospel, we are gospel partners, as integral a part as the preacher is. Isn't that wonderful news? That you are as integral to the work of the gospel as an overseas worker if you're giving your money to send that worker there. You are as integral to the work of the gospel, say on a particular campus in Philadelphia where there are campus ministers, you are as integral to that as they are when you give money to allow them to be there instead of working some other regular job. It's incredible, it's beautiful. And so the first way that God provides for givers is he's providing us with an opportunity to partner in the gospel, to go with our money where we can't necessarily go with our feet. And so that's why I would encourage you to really plan for this. To really plan, okay, God, how do you want me to give your money away for the advance of the gospel? And that's why I would encourage, I, I feel, on, on the basis of this verse, I feel good encouraging you to primarily give your money away to causes that advance the gospel. First and foremost, through your church, through the family of God that you're a part of, but also through all sorts of organizations that are moving the gospel forward in every sector of our city's life and around the world. Second way that God provides for givers is God provides givers with an opportunity to worship him. When we give, we're actually given the opportunity to worship. Now where am I getting that? Verse 18, Paul says, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, what Paul just said right there probably doesn't look like much, but that's astounding stuff. In the Old Testament, 
Only priests could offer sacrifices. Only the high priest could enter into the most holy place and once a year to provide a sacrifice that would be pleasing to God on behalf of the people. And what Paul is saying here is that in Christ, you are all priests. Jesus is the true high priest who didn't just pass through the curtain, he passed through the heavens. He went to the cross to die the death we deserve to die and to be resurrected so that anyone who is in Christ is righteous as Christ is righteous. Therefore, you have unhindered access to God. You and I, we are the new priesthood in Jesus Christ with unhindered access to God and now we offer our whole lives as sacrifices of worship pleasing to God. That's the glorious benefit of the gospel. And Paul tells us in verse 18 that one very central sacrifice of worship that is pleasing to God that we get to take part in now is giving our money away to the work of the gospel. I love that. When you write a check to advance the gospel, when you set up a account, okay, I'm not even gonna embarrass myself by not knowing how any of this works. I, I don't know anything about technology, okay? I just write, I, I like to write the check. Um, but um, when you're doing that, you're never just writing a check. You're never just setting up a PayPal account. You're, whatever Venmo is, you're not just doing that. I don't know. I heard my wife talk about it the other day. No clue. Um, you, you know what you're doing? You are participating in the life of being a new priest. In Jesus Christ, offering a sacrifice of worship that is just as integral to our life of worship as singing or communion. It's astonishing. You know, sometimes we will say, gosh, God loves me so much. He's done all this for me in Christ. How do I express that, my love for him? You know, one way you can is by offering a sacrifice of praise through financial giving. That's amazing. It's absolutely incredible that that's a way that we can express love for God. And that's why I, I would tell you that um, why I often encourage people to have giving goals Say, okay, this year we want to give this percent, but maybe next year we could bump it to this and, and this one after that. Why? Because we always want to be growing in our expression of love for God, and that's what giving is. And now, I'll just, I'll just level with you because I know at this point some of you are starting to say, like, this sounds a little self-serving. You're talking about giving money to the church. Aren't you paid by the church? Yes, yes. But here's what I'll, I'll say to you, just challenge from the bottom of my heart. I am so convinced that it is both biblical and worshipful to give your money away for the advance of the gospel, that if you need to go to another church besides City Light to do that, God bless you, I will not fight you on it. I will not try to keep you, you know, kicking and screaming from going out the door because I, I really do believe this stuff. God provides for givers. I want you to experience that, I really do. Third way that God provides for givers is that God provides givers with an opportunity to depend on him to provide. God provides for givers an with an opportunity to depend on him to provide. I'm getting that from verse 19. Paul promises the generous givers at Philippi, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing promise. Those of us that hate the health and wealth gospel get a little nervous when we read verses like that, right? And my God will supply every need of yours. I looked it up in Greek. Every need of yours means every need of yours. 
supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. God has provided for your greatest need. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. And God has provided that for us in Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God, reconcile us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. God has provided for our greatest need, reconciliation to him forever, being rescued out of hell and into the promise of eternal life and he has done it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's provided for our greatest need through the gospel. Now, why does Paul bring that up at this point? Because the Philippians are real people like you and me, who when we give our money away generously as worship for the advance of the gospel, I don't know about you, but I often get a little nervous that my needs aren't going to be met. I'm like writing that check going, but what about my daughter? But what about my son? Like, what's gonna, you know, we're, that's totally natural. Paul even speaks to it. And what he's saying is, listen, the God who has provided for your greatest need through Jesus Christ can be entrusted with your every need as you continue to faithfully offer the sacrifice of worship through generosity. And so we rejoice and we give glory to God whether we are the giver the receiver, or like most of us, both all at the same time. Because it's God who is providing. Now, if you give your money away generously to the work of the gospel, I do believe you can expect your needs to be met. But you may very well go through some seasons where a lot of wants are not met. You know, for example, I, I have a good friend who attends City Light Center City. He's lived down in Center City for a while, really passionate about the gospel permeating that part of the city. And so he lives down there and he gives a ton of his money away for the work of the gospel and he wants so badly to buy a house. Like he wants to be just this permanent resident there, wants to buy a house and you know what? He cannot afford it. He just can't, hasn't been able to save up enough money for a down payment for a house. And one of the primary reasons is because dude gives like 15% of his pre-taxed income away to the work of the gospel through um, various organizations, including City Light. How does that guy rejoice and give glory to God? When in being generous, yeah, he's got his needs met, but he's got a really significant want that's just not going met. On the flip side, I know some people in our church who give their money away generously to the work of the gospel and God just seems to be providing for them in such astounding ways that their temptation, my, my friend's temptation is to get bitter and frustrated. I know these other folks, their temptation is, man, I just have all this money and they put their security and identity in their bank account. The question is, how can either of these groups get off of the roller coaster and rejoice and give glory to God whether they're in the season of plenty or a season of want. And that's really where Paul takes us finally in our passage. 
He's saying whether you have plenty or want, you can rejoice and give glory to God because God provides the ultimate gift. Because no matter what season you are in, God provides the ultimate gift. Verse 10. We'll read down through verse 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. That's, that's a funny statement. He was in need, but not that kind of need. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need or any ultimate need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How did Paul rejoice and give glory to God when he was in prison and in want and out of prison and had abundance? Well, according to this passage, it's he was able to praise God and give him glory because he'd learned the secret of contentment. He'd learned the secret of contentment. Now, contentment is an inner joy that doesn't shift with the ever-shifting circumstances of life. Doesn't mean you're unmoved by life, by the way. It doesn't mean you're a stoic, like, okay, I'm just, I'm like Spock, you know, it's, it's not like that. No, contentment is, yeah, I'm moved by my circumstances, yeah, I care a lot, but I have a joy so deep that even the depths of a valley or the heights it can't move my joy. It's an internal joy so deeply rooted that it doesn't shift with the constantly shifting sands of our circumstances. And Paul says, the secret to having contentment in all circumstances is having Christ in all circumstances. He says, the reason I can rejoice and give glory to God when I have a lot or I have a little is in both cases, I have Jesus and so I have everything. I think Alec Mateer puts it perfectly when he says, it is finally because of Christ that Paul is contented and it is Christ whom he offers to us as the means and guarantee of our contentment. For Paul, the person who possesses Christ possesses all. For Paul, the person who possesses Christ possesses all. When you have Jesus and the strength he supplies, then you have everything you need even when he is the only thing you've got. When you have Jesus and the strength he supplies, you have everything you need so that you can enjoy having both your needs and a ton of your wants met without leaning on that as the meaning and security of your life. 
You know, it's like, it's like Tim Keller says, you know, we, we live on this like rock in the middle of a galaxy with all this space dust flying around us at like a nearly out of control pace. We're flying around a burning ball of gas and we think that a bank account's gonna make us secure. It's laughable. And Paul's saying, you got a bank account, rejoice. Don't have much of one, rejoice. Why? Because if you have Christ, you possess all. If you have Christ, you possess the image of the eternal God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who lived the righteous life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die on the cross in our place for our sins. If you have Christ, you have the resurrected King and Lord of the universe. If you have Christ, you have the one who promises to wipe away every tear from your eye and create a new heavens and a new earth and satisfy us with his presence forever. If you've got Christ, you've got all. And if you've got Christ, then you don't have to hold on to your stuff, whether it's your time, your treasure, or your talent with some kind of vice grip. Because you've got Christ. Other things are a gift to be enjoyed and to be given. And so we learn contentment by learning to depend on Christ through whom we can do all things, all things. Through Jesus, you can do everything you need to do. Through Jesus, you can do all things that pertain to life and walking with God. Through Christ, you can do all things, including the hardest thing, be content. Because when you possess Jesus, you possess all. And so what we're gonna do now as we respond to this Christ whom we possess by grace is we're gonna celebrate him and we're gonna remember him, the one that we possess.